Any questions about the archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus? Okay, there's none. That my whole point yesterday was to try to communicate there's no archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus. There is literary evidence, right, in, in early documents, in the, in the biblical text and in other written documents, but there's no archaeological evidence. There's archaeological evidence that supports um, some of the claims the Bible makes. There's no evidence for Jesus. And so what I, what I argued is, that doesn't mean he existed. That doesn't mean he didn't exist. That just means there's no archaeological evidence for it. That's all that means. And so the issues of faith should be taken on faith. It's not archaeology's job to uh, deal with who, and who, who is and who is not God or what is and what is not a Messiah. All, we, all archaeology can do and all science can do is tell you what people thought based on the evidence. It's not our job to, to make religious claims. That's all I was trying to say at the end of it. Any other questions? All right, let's move on. Everybody got the papers turned in? Okay, let's move forward. Um, let's talk about uh, after the end, towards the end of the Roman period, um, we saw this pressure cooker building up. The, they hated Herod, um, the great Jews did, and yet they didn't really ever want to take him out um, because was at least sensitive to him. After Herod the Great dies, uh, three sons, his three, three sons that survived him, right, weren't killed by him, uh, took over. Uh, Herod Archelaus, A-R-C-H-E-L-A-U-S, Archelaus, uh, took over in Jerusalem, and he was terrible. He was terrible, and he was immediately replaced, um, like within, within 10 years or so. Um, Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S, took over in uh, Galilee, Samaria. Um, he lasted a little longer. And Herod Philip took over way in the north, way, way, way up in the north. Um, and he was actually uh, more effective. He did do one thing, Herod Philip did, that none of the other Jewish leaders would do. And that is, Herod Philip was the first one to put his picture on a coin. So that's, that's his claim to fame is, we actually have coins of Herod Philip with his, with his picture on it. The question is, how could he get away with that? Anybody want to take a stab at it? He didn't rule in Israel? Huh? Well, he, he, he did. He ruled under a, a portion of, under the Roman Empire. Again, these guys are all serving Rome. They're not in the United States. They're serving Rome, but they're ruling the people. He was so far away from Jerusalem that he could get away with it. He was way up in the north. So, uh, so the three sons were Archelaus, Antipas, and, and Herod Philip. And ultimately they come to an end. When Archelaus is deposed, the Romans start coming in with uh, Roman governors. They get rid of this idea of, let's have a client Jewish king rule over uh, Jerusalem. Let's just bring in direct Roman rulers. So you get to a point of Roman rulers, they, of course, aren't as sensitive to Jewish tradition, Jewish law. Um, they're not as sensitive to Jewish religion. And so they're even more and more hated. So they try to show their boss by doing more and more approved things. And the Jews continue to fight back. And you just get a pressure cooker. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to a point where there's open armed revolt against Rome. And so today we're going to talk about uh, Rome in, uh, pardon me, Jerusalem in revolt. Just to give us some quick review, Pompey came in 63 BCE and annexed Jerusalem for Rome. Um, you have the first revolt from 66 to 73, which is what we're going to talk about right now. And then you get a second revolt. The Romans come in and squash the Jewish revolt, the Great Revolt, and then they try it again 60-something years later. Uh, in 132 to 135, we call this the Bar Kokhba Revolt led by a guy named Shimon or Simon Bar Kokhba. And then after that revolt is put down, uh, Hadrian comes in, I mean, just raises Jerusalem, bans Jews from the city, and rebuilds it as a purely Roman city called Alia Capitolina. And that's it for Jews in Jerusalem, at least legally, for a very, very long time. So that's what we're going to
today. Got this? We're going to come back to it. We're going to break this down to all the slides. Okay. Here's what we're talking about for a basic timeline. Uh, in 66 CE, um, Mucianus, yeah. The Roman governor of Syria, Mucianus, uh, is defeated. And he gets beat. Um, and he had this, so you get the beginnings basically of uh, a Jewish revolt. In 67, Rome appoints Vespasian, he's in yellow here, no, um, to conquer Galilee and the Transjordan. Remember, Nero's still, still emperor here. In 68, Nero dies, and Nero is so hated by the Roman people, forget the, the, the other the foreigners, the Roman people hate him so much, they end up banning his memory, banning his memory. So they go through all of his inscriptions, and they carve out his face, or they carve out his name. They try to do this as much as possible. So it's, it is possible. Uh, on Facebook nowadays, you just you know delete, you just unfriend somebody, or you can delete a post. It's much harder to go through all the monumental inscriptions of the president. But think about that, trying to delete the memory of a president you didn't like, right? Going around and, and doing that. But that's what they tried to do. And now you have what we call the, the year of these four emperors. You have all these different emperors vying for power, and it just gets weaker and weaker. Nobody can quite hold on to power. Um, Vespasian and Lucianus, who were uh, in Syria, um, swore allegiance uh, to Otho, one of the Otho Yonidadam was one of these four guys vying for the for to become emperor. Civil war then broke out, and Lucianus, who was the governor of Syria, persuaded Vespasian uh, to take up arms, and, and he eventually won, and then he went and took the imperial throne. So Vespasian, who was fighting in this area, in Galilee, ended up becoming the emperor of Rome. And he left his son, Titus, to fight the battle there in, in Samaria, Galilee, and also in Jerusalem. And on the 9th of Av, and we remember this date? What, what do we remember about this date, the 9th of Av? What is the date? So, either coincidentally, or that's just the way it happened, or that's the way they want the story to be, on the 9th of Av, of, of Av the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by Titus and his forces. Not by Vespasian. Vespasian had gone back. And Vespasian, remember, was the, the guy who, when he was sacking, when he was going through and sacking the Galilee, uh, remember we talked about Flavius Josephus, uh, who was um, uh, a general in the army leading, leading part of this revolt, and he entered into a suicide pact. They chose 10 people, and they kill everyone, and then one person kills all them. And then Josephus didn't kill himself. Vespasian shows up and he goes, uh-huh. He goes, no, 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 I'm not a general I'm a prophet, and you're going to be emperor. Well, it turns out Vespasian ends up being emperor, and he goes, I like this Josephus guy. Let him. So he puts Josephus on the, the, the dole, and uh, Josephus spends the rest of his days in the comfort, uh, uh, the protection of the Roman Empire, uh, writing histories of the Jews, writing biographies of himself. Right? And... Um, that's where we get a lot of this information. So a lot of what we know about the ancient world in this period comes from a guy who was leading a rebellion, kind of sold out, and became the Jewish historian for Rome. And we said that he likes to exaggerate numbers. Uh, the rule of thumb is not accurate at all, but kind of obviously any number that Josephus gives divide by 10. Um, and uh, he always tries to give an explanation that doesn't paint Rome in such a bad light, for instance. During this revolt, Titus and his forces came in and sacked the temple, but Josephus makes sure to point out that it was actually the Jewish militants, the zealots, who were trying to cause trouble against the Romans when they knew all was lost, that actually did something and the temple accidentally burned down. So it wasn't really Titus, it wasn't his fault, it was Jews, you know, trying to incite violence and so you shouldn't be violent type thing. So yes, Romans came in and destroyed Romans came in and destroyed the temple but that's not what you get from Josephus. At the destruction of the temple, which is in 70 CE, know that date, 70. So 586 is the destruction of the first temple, 70 CE is the destruction of the second temple. Or Herod's temple, or the second temple. On the 9th of Bob. It's 
happens to be the same date as destruction in Jerusalem. Some holdouts uh, actually escaped from the, the fighting and ran to Masada. You should know Masada. Masada was one of those forts that uh, Herod had, had been built earlier, that Herod used to flee to uh, when things got a little rough. Uh, has anybody been up to the top of Masada? It's, it's incredible. It also happens to be, because of the story I'm going to spend 20 seconds telling here, where uh, members of the Israeli military are taken up there and kind of sworn in because of this military uh, history to them. Some of these uh, guys escape, they go to Masada, they sneak up to the top, and they've got enough food, they've got crops up there, they've got enough water to survive, so that it only rains once a year, enough water will fill the cistern, and they can live. Let me show you what I mean here. Um, There's Masada. You see this? So the top of this is sea level, and the bottom of this is about, what is it, 1,400 feet below sea level? Right, the Dead Sea, this sits, the Dead Sea is just right off to the, just right here beneath it, and you can't see it. But it, um, it's the lowest point on the face of the Earth, the Dead Sea is, and this thing's at sea level. So you've got this kind of natural thing that comes straight up that you can't get to on any side. Let me show you another picture here. And um, and this is where they flee. You see this? So what the Romans do is for three years they send uh, a legion of soldiers down to Masada and they encircle it so no one can get out. So they put a mountain under siege. Then using slaves, using Roman captives, uh, pardon me, using Jewish captives, captures, they begin to build this earthen ramp, wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, dump, down, 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 1,400 feet worth, right? Um, wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, dump the earth. And they, for three years, built this earthen ramp to the top. And the story goes like this. Um, these guys who are at the top survive. They hold out from the Jewish revolt for three years, and they realize the Romans are coming. And once they get to the front door, we're all, we're all going to be taken as slaves. And so they decide it's better to die as free men than to live as slaves. So they enter into a suicide uh, part. They enter into a murder act. This suicide is technically uh, not permissible under Jewish law. So what they do is they pick ten people. Right? You've heard this story before. It's the same kind of story that you see with Josephus and his surrender. Uh, ten people. They kill all of their families and they kill all the other people. And those ten people cast lots. They choose one, that person kills the other nine, and then the last person kills himself. And so you have you know, 900 uh, murders and only one suicide. The Romans get to the top, they break in the next morning, and everyone's dead. So you just spent three years building a ramp, and you, you don't get to kill anybody. <laughs> and that was kind of their kind of way, I can't do it on the camera, but it's kind of, it's kind of these rebels way of giving them one last little finger. They didn't do that at the time, obviously. One last whatever the sign is to Rome, and then you're walking on a bunch of dead people. So Masada's famous, and it's beautiful, it's, it's really neat. Herod the Great built a three-tiered hanging palace. One, two, three. The second one is just a big jacuzzi. <laughs> and the reason you go down here is you get a lot of great wind. So even though it's really stinking hot down there, you get a great breeze coming across. And so Herod the Great um, would have this as a palace. And then of course you could grow crops all out of here. You have storehouses, which you can see here. To, to, once you get the crops, you can save them. And then the, underneath here, they just dug out a huge cistern. So if it rains one time, the rain that falls on this mountain all flows to the center. They've got it sloped, goes into the cistern, and you've got enough water for the entire region. The side, yeah. If there was no way to get up there, how did they actually get up there? There is a way up there. It's a snake path. Yes. And, and every year, we take students there. And uh, there's always you know, there's a gondola today. See this see this tour center down here? There's a little gondola, or actually I that's the hotel. There's a tour center here, and they put in a gondola, like a ski lift, right? You step in it, and then you ride up it, and then you step off, and it's great. Yeah. But there's always somebody who goes, no, I want to, I want to walk the snake path. And so we ride on the gondola, and we get up to the top, and we spend a couple hours up there, and we're looking around, enjoying it. And then as we're riding the gondola back down, because the bus is going to leave in a half hour. We see our, our, our uh, colleagues there getting up to the top. They're exhausted. They didn't get to see a thing, but they got to walk the snake path. So don't do it. <laughs> if you're going to do it, go down. I mean, and, and give yourself some time. 
Um, but the problem with walking up the snake path is, you know, you just drop boulders on people, right? You just literally, you're you know, shooting with arrows. It's hard. You can't. You certainly can't take rope, you know, siege machines and battering rams and stuff up to this. You might be able to scale it on this front side, but so it's not a way to, to attack it. So they built a siege ramp. Some mass, massive version of siege ramp that ready to make that. Any questions about Masada? There's a lot more details to it. I left a lot out. We got other things to cover, but. Um, it's a great, it's a great story. Uh, you know how much of it is true, how much of Josephus's legend is true, and we don't know. But, but it's there. You can go see it. Okay, um, what do we know? What are our sources for the first revolt? This is the revolt of 66 to 70 CE. Um, uh, Flavius Josephus wrote um, something about it, the Jewish War. He also mentions it uh, in another book he wrote called Antiquities, Antiquities of the Jews. And he explained that, as I said, the destruction of the temple resulted from zealots and or corrupt Roman governors or religious infidelity or misguided eschatological expectations <coughs> or social polarization or deteriorating relationships with the Gentile population, right? It's basically everything except the Romans came in here and sacked the city. So you can see he's getting paid for and he's working for the Romans, but he wants to try to be historical, so he does what we do all the time now. He spends it. He spends the story. So again, the big question is, and this goes for every piece of ancient literature, including the biblical text, the Quran, to an archaeologist. Right? Hebrew Bible, Christian New Testament, the Quran, all, you know, any piece of literature, ancient inscriptions. Archaeologists can't just take whatever a, a document says as truth. Right? It's, it's, it's written out of a certain point of view, trying to convince the reader of a certain way of life. Allah is God, or you know, Jesus is God, or they're, all, they're always trying to convince you of something. And, and, then, and these books usually uh, uh, say this up front. So we can't see them as objective history. So how do you objectively know about the past? One way is that you question everything. As I said the first day of class, you question absolutely everything. You use archaeology. You try to try to go from the rocks to the ground. The problem is, is the rocks don't stand up and tell you. Ah, the truth is, the you know the Romans destroyed the temple. And they don't do that. You have to. So it's subject to interpretation. And so now you've got rivaling interpretations. And this is what archaeologists fight about. Believe it or not, not not all archaeologists disagree. Just like not all people of faith agree. Right? We disagree about things as well. Sometimes they get very heated. Sometimes they get very personal. They shouldn't. Sometimes they do. I'm on this little soapbox trying to get archaeologists to be nice to one another. Nice is not a word that's usually associated with archaeologists. Fun is. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, archaeologists, you guys, as you grow up to be professional scholars, you can disagree with someone professionally and respectfully. Um, and Josephus did his thing. There's another uh, uh, Roman historian named Tacitus, who was a senator and also a, a historian. And he explained the revolt as arising from this messianistic, uh, messianic um, debate and also from inept administration. So basically, the, the revolt was a result of poor Roman uh, administration. Right? So anytime there's a riot, so people are rioting in the streets, there's always someone trying to say, why are they rioting? And a lot of times you can say it's bad policy on behalf of the police or the president or whatever. That's how he explains it. And then, of course, as I just said, we have archaeological excavations that attempt to come at it from a different standpoint, from out, without a written history. Right? Um, and I've told lots of people, uh, archaeology is like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle when you don't have all the pieces and you don't have the picture on the top of the box. So every once in a while you find two pieces together, but you have a hole. You don't know what to do with this. And you don't know what it's supposed to look like a lot of times. So that's what we do with archaeology. It's, it's by no means perfect, but it is a piece of a way of using objective evidence. You know, rocks aren't trying to convince you of anything. Um, and then you can use text, which should be, by the way, let me just say for the record, text should be considered archaeological objects. You should not do archaeology by dismissing uh, texts, written texts, religious texts, whatever they are, inscriptions, 
uh, and then just looking at the archaeology. Because texts are written for a reason. And even if those texts don't align with the archaeology, it allows archaeologists, scientists, to say, okay, this doesn't line up. Why is that? What, why, did the, why would the author either, was he, was he repeating a myth? Was he just repeating some story he had heard? Was he intentionally trying to lie about what's going on here, or she? Uh, or, you know, why does the text not match up with the, and that often tells us a lot about ancient people. But there was some other reason why they would want to tell a story that doesn't appear to be true. Were they perpetuating some myth that they had heard for generations and generations? So text should be considered as archaeological artifacts. We just don't accept everything that they say. We test every single thing that every written document or inscription says. So scientists aren't evil, they're not, you know, we just question everything, like good scientists should. Okay, um, so let's talk about the destruction of the temple. We mentioned this a little bit. Uh, they're destroyed in 70 by Titus, that will be on your exam, that's, that's like who destroyed the first temple. Um, it remained in ruins until Hadrian, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, came along and built a temple to Jupiter in 135, to Zeus, right? The Roman, the Roman equivalent of, of, of Zeus is Jupiter. And then the same issues that we have with um, the destruction of the first temple, with cognitive dissonance, we have again here. Because there was a whole new generation of people of faith <coughs> that said, you know, Jews in this case, that said, ah, now we have our temple back. Now we have a place to go. Right. Now God is with us again. And now it disappears again. So they're going through the same thing. Basically, where, uh, where will God go? Where did he go? If this was his presence, now where is he going? The other big thing is, if you can't go to the temple to worship, how do you demonstrate you're Jewish? And it's a question today, I mean, for whatever faith, but right now in this period of this stuff, what does it mean to be Jewish? Is it a certain look? Is it who your mother is? Is it circumcision? Right. All of these questions are now up in the air, and it, gets to, it begins to be redefined. Okay. Before 70, every Jew paid a half-shekel temple tax to, for the upkeep of the temple. Does that make you Jewish because you paid the tax? Um, let me bring this up here. Vespasian. And you, got, you got this in? I'll hold it there for a second. Vespasian um, <coughs> institutes a fiscus judaicus, basically this a special tax on the Jews, right, for the upkeep of, of his temple. Um, so after the destruction of the temple, the temple's not there anymore, but they've still got to pay the tax. In fact, they've got to pay the tax to upkeep a now pagan temple, which has never happened. So you used to do it out of, out of oh, we love the temple, so we'll pay tax. Now you're paying the same tax uh, to upkeep a, a pagan temple. And it really infuriated the Jews, obviously. So what does it mean to be Jewish? And this is one of the questions we'll see uh, from here on out. What does it mean to be a, a follower of God, if you will? What does it mean to live in this holy city and not have a temple? Got this? Yes? Um, you said that one of the reactions to the destruction of the first temple is that they begin to say this is where God's name is worshipped, not right. himself. At this point, is that like the yeah, general idea? That, that entire that, that idea of the name being a place where his name is worshipped is great because now God doesn't have to live here in the temple. And, and the, the understanding of God at the time had, had evolved or developed to a point where they no longer thought that old way where God was walking around the earth and he lived in the temple. Um, he's, a, he's a cosmic God. The question is, um, how do you reinterpret that promise to David? And a lot of what a lot of Jewish groups did is they began to reinterpret that promise by expecting not an earthly descendant of David, but a heavenly descendant of David. And this is called messianism. Right? I mean, messianism is technically anybody, Messiah is anybody who's anointed. But as what we know today as messianism is this idea that 
someone will come as the Messiah and will, you know, kind of lead the Jews back to uh, prominence and overthrow whoever it is that's, that's occupying them or, or holding them down. And a lot of these groups were looking for a cosmic Messiah. Somebody, to, some supernatural being to come in and lead the revolt against Rome. And Christians obviously thought this person was Jesus. Except he didn't do a lot of the things that people expected a Messiah to do, like wipe out the Romans. Jesus shows up and people say, oh, the Messiah, and then he gets killed by the Romans. And they're like, what? No, that's not what you're supposed to. And then the story says he comes back from the dead. And then the apostles come up and go, okay, now you're going to kill the Romans, right? And set up your kingdom and wipe them out. And he goes, no, I'm going to go away. So he floats up into the sky. <laughs> and they're like, now what? Now what do we do? Now what do we do? So I've got a Forrest Gump scene again, right? It's like, now, now what? And that's basically the beginning of Christianity. Jesus was a Jew, by the way. He wasn't a Christian. Right? This, is, this is an important thing to point out. Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus went to the temple, paid his tax, Right? Read Torah. He was a Jew. But at a point, he goes away, and the other people start saying, that was the Messiah. Well, well how's he the Messiah? The Romans are still in power. He's gone. No, 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 no. He's a cosmic Messiah. Well, by the way, he's also God. Right? So then they started saying he was God. Now, and wait, wait, wait. How can you have two gods? No, 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 no. And so for the next three, four hundred years, they began to come up with this idea of how can you be both man and God? And what is that Holy Spirit thing? Trinity. And then you come up with this doctrine of the Trinity. What you can see is people are struggling so hard to reinterpret that promise to David, they start coming up with, no, no, no. He was a man, but he came from God, and so Jerusalem is still a holy city, but he lives in the sky, and he's in our hearts, and and the Trinity was actually, it's not one God, it's not three gods, it's kind of both. And you can see people attempting to struggle with what it means to be the son of David, what it means to be a person of faith. And of course, the Jews follow, uh, pardon me, these, this sect of Jews who followed Jesus began to be called lots of names, but they ultimately were called Christian. They, they followed the Christ, which is Christ's Greek for uh, Messiah. So they started to call them Christians, and that, that's when you begin to see the separation between what we know now as Judaism and Christianity. In the beginning, they were all Jews. Because some believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and some didn't. And those who did had to explain a lot of things. And so that's where you get Christian doctrine. And then uh, Islam, we're going to talk uh, next week, like next week and, and the following week, about Islam. What do they do with Jerusalem? How do they interpret Jesus? What do they do with Moses? What do they do with Abraham? So we'll look at that. Titus destroys the temple in Jerusalem and does what every great Roman emperor does. He goes back uh, and builds a big arch to commemorate his destruction of someone. So this is what you do when you wipe someone else out, you brag about it. And you put a big uh, inscription and you put and you decorate it. And one of the decorations on the arch of Titus is this. Can you guys see this okay? It's a dark picture, but I want you to see it. We'll pull the lights just for a second. Can you see it now a little better? Um, what you see, what's this right here? It's a menorah. It's basically the big lampstand that stood in the temple, and they're carrying it away as booty. You know what booty is? Not the Mix-a-Lot version of booty. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a, a, a loot, treasure that you take that you that you take from someone. Thank you. Um, and then uh, he minted coins. And they're called Judea Capta coins. Judea Capta. So this is how the Romans do propaganda, right? They wipe you out, then they go build big arches and brag about, look, we wiped you out and we're taking away all the things from your temple. We've destroyed your temple, by the way, to remind you. Now we're going to mint coins to commemorate the fact that we wiped you out. So they mint coins, and what you see here, and you can get this on the printout, is you know, uh, like the, the conquering soldier or the emperor there representing Rome standing up. And you see kind of kneeling down with his hand on his face, crying, right? Um, uh, a Jew. And the coin will say, Judea Capta. Uh, Judea or Jerusalem is captured. And then they mint these coins and they mint and they issue them in Jerusalem. 
Right? So every time a Jew wants to buy or sell something, they've got to use this money that reminds them of what happened to them. It's just, it's just salt in the wound, man. It's just rubbing it in. That's what they're doing. The Romans just didn't mess around. Right? And again, I, I, we talked about Persian diplomacy. The Persians did things a little bit differently. They were just as violent, just as, as brutal, and just as magnificent. But they had a little more di diplomatic way of doing things. The Romans, this was their form of diplomacy. <laughs> we'll wipe you out, and then we'll tell you we wipe you out, and then we'll make you use money that commemorates the fact that we wiped you out. <laughs> I, I meant, I forgot, and I'm sorry, and if I remember wrong, I have a couple of these Judea Capta coins. Uh, back, way back in the day, I used to collect coins, and so I ended up with um, some uh, coins that I got from a, a colleague in Canada. Uh, it's a silver one, it's a silver coin that says Judea Capta, quite, quite And uh, yeah, I'll bring that. Some of these are pictures of, uh, I'll show you some of our mine. The, the Jews then, plotting their revenge, right? They're, they're, they, the temple's destroyed, they're in Rome, they, they continue to live, it's not it's not the pleasant things, and finally you do what you do when you've been destroyed and conquered and you've got no hope, you begin to rise up, you begin to organize, right? And every, every major military offensive, there's a point where somebody comes in and wipes them out, and then you start developing an underground, you start developing this, this resistance, right? People of the revolution type thing, you're gonna stand up and you're gonna, you're gonna take it back, Right. So the Jews decide they're going to they're going to have another revolt. They just need a leader, and they find this leader. There are lots of people who tried this, but the one who kind of had a little bit of success is named Shimon Bar Kokhba. Now, a little word about his name. His name was actually Bar Kosiba. Bar Kosiba, because he was from this region, named after the region from which he came. But Bar Kosiba can also be interpreted uh, in Hebrew as at least uh, some of the later Jewish writings do this, as son of a lie. Bar means son of, right? And Kosovo means to lie. Zab, right? So, uh, you don't want to be, if you're going to be this great military rebel, you don't want your name to be the son of a lie, or the son of a false cause, or something. Um, so he changed his name to Bar Kokhba. And Bar Kokhba means son of the star. Which is a much more messianic name. I really, you can really, you know, if your name is the Pansy, you're not going to be a big WWF star, right? WWE, whatever they call it these days. But if your name is The Rock or The Undertaker or something, I don't know who, who the guys are these days. I used to watch this as a kid. Um, if your name is The Rock, then that's a, that's a that's a good name, right? You want your name to be Thrasher or something like that. You don't want it to be, you know, something less strong. Anyway. He changed his name. His name was Barcosima, it's not Barcosima. Um, and we have some sources about this, not a lot. Dio Cassius, a Roman historian. We have the Talmudic sources. Um, and then, of course, we have, as always, archaeology, which is what we kind of see as our objective source. What are some things about the um, Second Revolt that I want you to know about? Um, there was a rabbi. You don't need to write all this down. You can print it out. But there was, I want to highlight one thing here. Um, there was a rabbi named Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, very famous rabbi early on, and he bought in. He thought for certain that Shimon Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And there's a very famous line of another rabbi who disagreed, who said, Rabbi, uh, said Akiva, uh, grass will be growing up through your jawbone, and the Messiah will still not have come. Which is a very fancy, clever way of saying, you're going to be dead in the ground, and grass will be growing where you where you were, where you are, and the Messiah still won't be here. It's his very very fancy way of saying Barakova is not the Messiah. And of course, by the way, spoiler alert: the, the revolt fails, and Barakova has been remembered as his original name, the son of the lie. Right? He said he was, but he wasn't. Obviously, the Romans are still here, and so um, they call him the son of the lie. Um, oh, and we already mentioned this. After the revolt, after the revolt, from 132 to 135, again, it's the second Jewish revolt. The first one's called the Great Revolt, 66 to 70 CE. The second revolt is called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, commonly, and it's 132 to 135 CE. 
uh, Hadrian comes in and rebuilds, raises it to the ground and rebuilds Jerusalem as Aelia Capitolina. And he then bans the Jews from ever going back. Except, and this is a very Roman thing to do, except on the ninth of Av, the Jews can go back one day a year, the day that the temple was destroyed, and go mourn. You're allowed to go back and mourn the loss of your temple, and then get out. Which is just, again, it's salt in the world. Questions? Questions? I'm moving on. I, I, I do want to show you some of the archaeological evidence of the Barcoco revolt. The Titus only raised down the temple? Yeah. Vespasian led, basically suppressed a lot, fought a lot of the battles in the Galilee. They're coming from the north, they're, they're sacking city after city after city, and then he, he's up there at the, in the Galilee, and he finds Josephus, and Josephus does this prophecy, and that's what, we, that's what Josephus says. Did it happen? We don't know, but that's the story. Um, Vespasian decides, I'm going to go back and end this debate. Remember, there were like two or three guys, Otho, Galba, some other guys, who were all vying for the presidency, the presidency. who were all vying, thinking Gore Bush. They're all vying for, you know, who's going to be the emperor? And uh, Vespasian shows up with his army and says, I'll be the emperor. Questions? Okay. And then basically takes over and becomes the emperor. And leaves his son, Titus, who's also now the general, uh, to finish the job, and it's Titus who actually knocks out the temple. Okay, let me show you some of the evidence we have. I told you I like coins, right? So, what's the fancy word for one who collects coins? Anybody know? Starts with an N. Like that. We have other documents like that. 
or hopefully the letters here, were the dispatches, or oftentimes there were letters reminding the troops, don't forget the fruit, or don't forget the this and that, which were used for festivals. To answer our earlier question, how, how is one Jewish uh, after the destruction of the temple? Well, a lot of it is your identity is based upon your holidays that you keep, the way that you dress, the food that you eat, uh, and how you pray. So one of the ways, you know, what? how do you know, if you, if you have a friend and you don't know what religion he or she is, what's one of the things that you can tell them? Well, if they celebrate Christmas, right, they could be nothing and you're celebrating Christmas, so they could be a Christian. Or if they celebrate Ramadan, right, okay, they're maybe, they're maybe they're Muslim, right? Or holy, holy, what, what uh, holy? That's the one where you're, yeah, Hindu, where you're just throwing paint all over each other. Oh, I, I always threaten to do that. I want to go celebrate that one day. I just have a feeling they're going to dump on me especially. Mm -hmm. Anyways, you can tell what religion someone is by the holidays they keep or don't keep. Okay? So a lot of these letters are saying, don't forget this fruit or that fruit because they're celebrating a particular holiday. Um, I think I, I wanted to point out one other thing. Um, the other thing we talked about earlier that you use coins for is for propaganda. So Mark Hoffman would mint these coins and he would put slogans like, you know, we have, what do we have today on, on U.S. coins? We have what? Uh, out of many, one, or in God we trust, or things like that. They put for the redemption of Israel, right? Or for the freedom of Jerusalem. Or Shimon Bar Kokhba, we used to put Shimon Nasi Israel. Now, what do we know about this phrase, Nasi? Remember when we said that the Hasmonean kings would refer to themselves, and before they called themselves outright kings, they would refer to themselves as Nasi? Right? Because why? It was another term, it was another way of saying leader without saying king, but also why? It had messianic overtones. The prince. So Shimon would mint coins that had his name and Nasi Israel on the front, he's basically claiming to be the, the leader, not the king, but the leader. What do you think's on the back of his coins, by the way? We'll come to it in a second. What do you think's on the back of his coins? His face. Who? Not his face. He didn't put his face on coin. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. What do you do if you're trying to use coins as propaganda? They don't want to use the Judaic captive coins anymore. So they're trying to use these coins as propaganda, but you don't have a lot of money. What you do is you take existing coins and you overstrike them. So what they would do is they would, they would take these dies, they would make a die, and then have they make coins. You would have a, a die like this, and you would engrave the bottom. And then you'd have another die, and you'd engrave that bottom. And you put the one die down, and you set a blank piece of metal on it, and you put the other die on top, and, and then you'd hit it with a hammer. Right? And then all of a sudden, you'd get two inscriptions on each side. And you'd have to do it backwards in the die, so that the coin would come out forwards, which is why they made so many mistakes. And sometimes they transpose letters. And then once they got the die made, they didn't want to redo it. You can't you know, delete, delete, retype. So they would just use it. Okay? So. But you need silver, right? You need bronze. You need something to, to strike to make coins. So what they did to save money and to kill two birds with one stone is they would take existing coins and overstrike them. Not a bad idea, right? So you take this coin with a picture of Nero on it and the Imperial Roman Eagle, a graven image, and you just overstrike it with a lulav or with some kind of symbol of Jewish faith, and then a picture of the temple. Right, so here, here's your Tetra-style temple. And you can see, if you look closer, do you see Nero's head still up? you see the head upside down here, behind it? Here's one of Domitian. You can still kind of see Domitian's chin and his face, but then you see the Jewish wreath around it. So this is a neat thing, right? You, you can actually take and literally stamp out this Roman memory, this memory of Rome. Um, Look at this one. And I, and I give you lots of examples of them, right? So, yeah, I wish this thing came down a little bit more. There we go. 
So on the bottom, you can see there's one with a date palm on one side and a, and a vine leaf on the other. Those are the Jewish <coughs> symbols, inanimate object, right? Palm branch and a, and a harp. Neville read a harp. And then grapes and trumpets, shofar of some, of some sort. These are all good Jewish icons, right? They're all good Jewish things. And they would overstrike existing coins. I draw your attention to this one up here. Do you see the chin here in the mouth, the nose? And then there's a picture of the temple, but you only see three. They didn't quite, they didn't have it centered, so he hit kind of one side. So this side's overstruck, but this side of the temple is gone, and you can still see his chin. Do you see that? Hey, do you see the, the, the symbol here? Right, this bundle. And then do you still see the wings of the Roman eagle behind it? I think I have a, there. Can you see it there? So this is killing two birds with one stone. Basically, you can make your own coins and put your own slogans and your own propaganda. I'm the Messiah, or I'm the, I'm the Nasi um, for the freedom of Jerusalem and the liberation of, of Israel and this kind of stuff. And at the same time, you're striking out Roman coins. By the way, minting coins was something that uh, Rome very strictly guarded. Anybody who starts minting their own money is said to be, that's a, that's a, that's a claim of authority, right? Uh, during the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, the first thing the South started doing was banking Confederate dollars, right? Um, I wouldn't be surprised. There's always talk about it, of different states saying, screw it, we've had it with this U.S. economy, we're going to start minting our own money, right? The whole concept of the euro, all these different company, uh, countries giving up companies, all these different countries giving up their own money, the franc and the Deutschmark, and taking on the euro. And now they, they're talking about maybe some company, uh, they're the same thing these days, countries and companies. Giving them up and going back to their own money. Yeah. Great question. Question is, um, for those of you in the back, um, these are obviously taking place during the revolt. What happened at the end of the revolt? I've got some slides I'll show you. I'll show you exactly what happened and how we know the revolt only lasted four years. Um, this is what it's supposed to look like, by the way. Without the eagle, this is a, this is a good overstrike. So it's the same, the same stuff. You can see these temples. They're trying to what? And why are we talking about the Bar Because they're trying to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem. They're trying to appeal to that memory of Jerusalem. This was a time, every time that temple stood, we were independent. Every time that temple stood, we were one people governing ourselves. And every time that temple's knocked down, we're, we're nothing. We're, we're occupied peoples. We work for someone else. And so they would put pictures of the temple to try to invoke, invoke the memory of the temple, the memory of independence. And then they would join the battle uh, and take on Rome and get killed. Right? But, that, but you needed soldiers if you're going to fight a revolt. And so one of the ways you do that is you mint coins with symbols on them that are going to bring back the memory of when it was good. Right? Think, think when, when things were great. How about this one? I had mentioned um, earlier that Bar Kokhba wasn't pretty good with Hebrew. In fact, we've got a letter from Bar Kokhba that says, the opening line is, this letter is written in Greek because we have no one who can write Hebrew. <laughs> That's how Hellenized things had gotten. The Aramaic had taken over kind of Hebrew, and Greek had taken over his correspondence and business language. Hebrew was what you read uh, in the synagogue. We'll talk about synagogues in a second. Hebrew was read during religious things. Everyone else spoke the, the lingua franca, the, the common language of the day. But here on the left, you see Barcoffa coins minted from 132 to 135 CE. And here you have uh, 70 CE. From the, from the Jewish revolt, they, they did mint some coins during the 70th Jewish revolt. Shekel uh, 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 Israel, right? And then they put an hollow. They can count with letters in Hebrew, right? So year one. Shekel of Israel, year one. So year one of the rebellion. And then you get this great one, uh, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem for the shop, right? Uh, Kodesh is the word for holy. Literally, Jerusalem the Holy, which is yet this, this thing. We named the classes for a reason. Uh, Dr. Schneider named the classes for a reason. The name keeps coming up, right? So they would call it Jerusalem the Holy. But here you can see pretty good evidence 
that the symbolism, the writing, they're using an old form of Hebrew script, Paleo-Hebrew or Aramaic script, the old stuff, and um, not using the, the more modern square script. I just settled that. Sure. Now let's talk very quickly about who is Shimon Bar Kokhba. Um, here we have a coin, uh, Shimon, right? Shimon, right below in Hebrew, Shimon, Simon, Simon Bar Kokhba. So he was the one who was leading the rebellion. Um, And here we already talked about this. It was uh, Simon or Shimon, the Nasi of Israel, the prince or the Messiah of Israel. And Yaakov Meshur, another famous nerd, I mean, numismatist, uh, um, uh, said the title Nasi or prince on this series of coins is an innovation. Because Bar Kokhba was neither from a royal nor a priestly family, like the Hasmoneans, right? He could assume neither neither the title of king nor priest, even though the Hasmoneans did it. He saw what happened to the Hasmoneans, right? So he wouldn't do it. He therefore adopted a prestigious ancient term, which served uh, to recall the leaders of the 12 tribes. In the book of Numbers, the leader of each of the tribe was Nasi. But by the time you get down here to the late second and post second temple period, Nasi is kind of this loaded term for Messiah. So he chooses that term, because he, he had, there's biblical precedence for it, but there's also this messianic expectation that he's trying to embody. He's trying to portray himself as, as, um, as the um, expected Messiah. By the way, the answer to our trivia question was, what did he put on the back he used to put Eliezer the priest? Now you tell me why Bar Kokhba is trying to portray himself as the Messiah of David, on the other side of this coin, would put Eliezer the priest. Yep. Because it, David had like the king ruler and then the high priest that <laughs> shows that there's like a died monarchy. Okay. I think that's, that's right. Uh, the, the answer is, just as David used to have the high priest and both were anointed, right, and at Qumran and Dead Sea Scrolls, we see expectation of a, a Messiah of David and a Messiah of Aaron, kind of a priestly Messiah and a, and a royal Messiah. I think Bar Kokhba was trying to do the same thing. He knew that there was an expectation of two Messiahs, so he put, painted himself as the Nasi Israel, right? the, the, the Messiah or the, the prince, the leader of Israel, the, the, the royal king, and then he put Eliezer on the back to try to say, by the way, for those of you, I'm not, I'm not a heretic, I also want to have Eliezer be the, the, the anointed high priest of Israel. So again, you see this dual messianic uh, theme trying to be embodied by Bar Kokhba. And of course, we already talked about right how the Christians tried to do this. They tried to merge the two fields, but they had a problem because Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, so they appealed back to Melchizedek, right, Melchizedek, and said, "Yeah, he counts as a high priest, but from Melchizedek, not from Levi." So you've got the four basic movements, the three basic movements: Quran, uh, uh, Bar Kokhba. We have let me say it this way. We have three different Jewish movements that are at least dealing with and grappling with this idea of dual messianism. Yeah? Um, so, for the record, which, which tribe did Jesus is said to be from, uh, well, from Joseph, which most scholars would say is, is of Judah. So he would have qualified as the son of David. Is that correct? That my, right? That he's, he's called son of David. The question is, was he king? Was he was he in line to be king? Okay, fine. You want to be son of David? He can't be a high priest. That's that's the big question. That's why you have the Book of Hebrews. I think the Book of Hebrews is written. In, so Hebrews is the book in the Christian New Testament. It's a book that's trying to show that Jesus does qualify to be both, but not in the way that everybody expected. That's, the, that's it's called an apology. It's not I'm sorry. It's, they're trying to show some kind of proof or rationale for having him be both. Questions here? Okay. Uh, yeah, we already did that. A uh, uh, couple more slides on Borkokhba. You saw the one on year one, right? You saw the one on year one. Here's a coin from year two. So we have Borkokhba revolt coins from year one. 
here's year one for the redemption of Israel. Right? They're just getting started. We're gonna we're gonna rise up and we're gonna take back Israel, all of them. And then by the time you get to year two, for the freedom of Israel, we might not be able to take it all, but at least we'll be free in Israel. Year two coins, year three coins. Uh, would you believe the freedom of Jerusalem? See what's happening? And there's no date on it, by the way. We know it's the third year, but there's no date on it. And there, there really aren't, I, you know, some people argue there might have been some year four coins. Year four coins, no year five coins. The Romans put down this revolt as well. And that's when Hadrian steps in, right? Hadrian comes in, raises the city of Jerusalem, and rebuilds it as Alia Capitolina. Um, Josephus says that Jerusalem was so thoroughly razed to the ground by those that demolished it that nothing uh, was left that could ever persuade visitors that it had once been a place of habitation. That's the quote from Josephus. That's how badly this place was destroyed. You can never tell people who lived there. Which is also one of the other problems of doing archaeology there. Is now that things built all over, so you don't want to take somebody's house down to, to look. And if you did, it's been destroyed so long ago that you know, Josephus at least says you can't tell the people were there. Anyways. The, there's a story that Hadrian was originally going to rebuild it for the Jews. But when he got there, he needed to reward his engineers, right? He needed to reward his soldiers. So he said, you know what? I'll rebuild it uh, for you guys, for my soldiers. Uh, and then, of course, that was one of the things that led to the Barcopa revolt. Pardon me, that led to further, the, the further revolt. Jews were banned from the city. Um, and he set it up with a nice cargo uh, right down the center, and it became your stereotypical Roman city. Alia Capitolina, built by Hadrian. Any questions? Now, I want to spend a, our remaining. Did you have a question? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in the beginning of the class, we talked about how it's such a random place to call the city. Why did you want to do it here since it's not a Yeah, so that's a good question. Why would. Uh, the question is if this was such an odd place to build a city in the beginning, why would you want to rebuild a city that you just destroyed? A couple of reasons are possible. One, the city now has some infrastructure. You just knocked down the buildings. But the city has a tradition. It has a legacy. Right? So, uh, so one of the reasons is you've got some things built. Herod the Great spent a lot of time building up the water systems and bringing it in. So you do have a, a more likely place for a habitation. The other one, I, I would argue, would be akin to the overstrike uh, overstruck coins, right? What's one of the ways to really get something stamped out of memory? It's not enough to throw the coin away, it's, it's to stamp over it, right? How do you get out, what's the easiest way to get all the air out of a glass? You have a cup, a coffee cup or something. Or a bottle. There's a, I see an empty bottle there. What's the easiest way to get all the air out of a bottle? Yeah, fill it up with something else. Fill it up with water, all there is left. What's one of the ways to stamp out the memory of Jerusalem? Don't just leave it in, in, in ruins, like the Babylonians did, which allowed knock the walls down, which allowed the, the Jews came back and rebuilt it. You build something else over it. And then in order to rebuild your city, you've got to knock something down first, knock some other people's houses down, and then rebuild it. It's, it's, it's the way around the thing. Plus, he conquered this, and now he can give this stuff away to his soldiers. All right, let's talk just for a second about the rise of the synagogue. What's a synagogue? It's a place of worship. Wait, that can't be. The place of worship in ancient Israel was the temple. What we begin to see is uh, these smaller places of worship popping up all around kind of alternative places of worship to the temple. The big question for a long time was, and the thought was, that once the temple was destroyed, then Jews said, okay, we can't go back to Jerusalem, and we can't build an alternate city because there's only one Jerusalem. 
So they start building these smaller kind of regional places called synagogues, and they began to worship. What archaeology shows us now is that there were actually synagogues that existed prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the earliest synagogues weren't even in Israel, they were in Egypt. So I've got scholars thinking, all right, maybe, you know how we have these altars? Remember I showed you the slide with the alternative temples? You had the uh, Leontopolis, and you had El Latine, El Latine, uh, El Latine uh, synagogues, pardon me, El Latine temple, uh, Leontopolis. You have these other alternative temples. You have the temple at uh, Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple. So we already know that people, some people were willing to build alternative places of worship. So it shouldn't surprise us that other people were building synagogues, basically places to worship or to be Jewish, to do acts of worship outside of the temple. And they predated the temple in Jerusalem. Once the temple in Jerusalem is knocked down, that becomes the dominant way. There, there ceased to be this desire to go back and rebuild the temple again. One reason is there's a temple of Jupiter, there's a temple of the pagan god. On it. So they began to worship in synagogues. So Judaism is again fundamentally transforming. Remember when God was the Ark of the Covenant, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, and then they knock the temple down and you get Ezekiel has this vision of a portable God type thing? Now you don't even have a temple anymore. You've got these portable or regional temples that are built. And the desire to go back to Jerusalem and build a temple fades, and synagogues become the dominant way to worship, place to worship. Uh, so we talked about how they weren't there. It was a reaction to the destruction of the temple, but there were synagogues that predated the destruction of the temple, meaning that that idea was already in place. That practice was already there. Um, we have them in, in Capernaum, uh, Capernaum, Masada, Herodian, Jericho, Gamla, Jerusalem. Okay. So we can say that the rise of the synagogue the appearance of synagogues all over is a response to the destruction of the temple, but it was a response perhaps even to the destruction of the first temple. Some people went back and rebuilt the Jerusalem temple, but they didn't stop others from being worshiping both. And here's a picture of the one in the It's one of the nicer remains of a nice temple. It's actually not a temple, a synagogue. It's actually a synagogue built on top of a synagogue. You get up there closer, you can see that there was, there was a black foundation stone, and then it was knocked down, and then there was another one built on top. Um, what are they? What, what, are, what are some of the traits of a synagogue? Usually it's a central room with a bench around the edge. So the earliest ones we find have benches. You can sit around the edge, and you could read. <coughs> One of the marked transitions, one of the things we know from a period of temples, temple worship in Jerusalem, to worship in synagogues, uh, is the loss of, it wasn't necessarily the temple, it was the loss of the altar. No more was there going to give blood sacrifices. The, sacrifice, the sacrificial system was how one worshiped. You were commanded to do that in the Old Testament. It's still there in the Hebrew Bible, Christian Old Testament. Um, you give this sacrifice, you give this sacrifice, you, you, know, you give a, a, a lie, you give a whole burnt offering, or you just give a, a drink offering. You can give different kinds of offerings for different kinds of sins. And that went away with the destruction of the temple. So if you can't go to the temple and sacrifice, what do you do? Right? The Bible specifically uh, commands Jews to go and offer sacrifice. Why don't we see Jews going to Jerusalem and offering sacrifices today? And don't say because there's no temple and no altar. <clears throat> what has happened to Judaism? The transition from a, a, a religion of blood sacrifice to a tradition of prayer and study of the Torah, study of the Bible. So studying the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, uh, and giving prayers, keeping certain holidays, uh, dressing a certain way, Right? Wearing certain or not wearing certain mixes of fabrics, <laughs> kosher regulations, right? Not mixing, uh, don't never eating pork, not mixing mixing meats with milk, things like that. This is how they began to manifest what it means to be Jewish. And not all Jews do that today. Some of them just keep the holidays, but don't worry about the kosher laws. There's different. There's different degrees of this. Yeah. What does kosher mean? Kosher. Kosher means um, kashrut. 
it's, it's this idea of it. The idea of it is that there are certain things that are clean. There are certain things that you can, that are acceptable, and there are certain things that are separate, that are unacceptable, haram, that, that are, um, that are, haram, that are, that are separate. You can't do them. And so, and you get these uh, in, that's where you see all the kosher laws, Leviticus and Numbers, um, the idea being that um, you can only eat certain animals. Pork is out. You can't eat pig. You can't eat any kind of uh, scavenger, owl, any kind of uh, shellfish, things that feed on the bottom are out. Um, the other big rule that comes down to us today <coughs> was originally a rule of um, animal cruelty, against animal cruelty, and that was don't boil the milk in it, uh, the kid in its mother's milk. That is, if you have a mama sheep or whatever, a mama anything, and it gives you a baby sheep, pick one. Either eat the baby sheep and keep the mama so you can have more, more sheep, right? So this is producing the food for you. Or kill the mama and eat that and let the baby grow up and then you can have more sheep over here. It's not smart to kill them both, right? You don't want to kill. Uh, both the mom and you don't want to boil the, the way it comes out. You don't boil the kid, the baby, in the mother's milk. But the way that that has been interpreted uh, through the mission of the Talmud and stuff is don't mix milk with meat. So there is no such thing as a pepperoni pizza right? in, in, in kosher law. There is no cheeseburger. Trust me, I've tried it in Israel. They have Burger Kings in Israel. Sure. They have Burger King. If you go to Burger King, you can get a hamburger. And they won't sell you a cheeseburger. So, so I went up to the counter and ordered a hamburger. And I paid for it, left. I went up to another counter and ordered a piece of cheese. <laughs> Thank you. I want to make myself a cheeseburger. Um, by the way, one of the things that is legal is tuna fish. You can put tuna fish. That's not technically meat uh, under the kosher law.